So New Zealanders opening up their favourite news websites on Sunday morning would find a smorgasbord of stories available. They had John Key's thoughts on our COVID-19 strategy on the Herald. Over on Stuff, they could read John Key's thoughts on our COVID-19 strategy. On News Hub, they could also read John Key's thoughts on our COVID-19 strategy. And if they uh, gave up and went to the ODT, they could also read John Key's thoughts on our COVID-19 strategy. Hey, Hayden, so, Hayden, I want John Key's publicist. That's a slam dunker. I just, I don't think that we can do the same stuff for you, Brian. I know, I know that you have good thoughts as well, <laughs> but I just don't think it's going to have the same pull. Still, even for a former PM, a really unusually monotonous selection of headlines seldom seen in New Zealand media. So what happened? Did he, did he stitch deals with all the big organisations or his publicist? What happened? How come he got such good coverage? I mean, so this is Media Watch's understanding, <laughs> Brian. From what, from what we understand, Stuff and NZME had both been pursuing Key for a little while, wanted him to write a column. Uh, then when he did one, he said he was doing one, they had the understanding it would be available to both of them. So they're the initial two. They both went up with it on Sunday morning. Then News Hub uh, decided it was a bit uh, missed about missing out. It asked whether it could republish it got the okay to do that, and the ODT has a copy-sharing agreement with NZME. So that's the four that's how the, the four uh, columns got printed pretty much simultaneously on Sunday. Now, um, this was just one of, of three alternative COVID solutions that had been, received publicity. We had John Key, former Prime Minister, National Party leader, then we had the ACT policy, and then we had the current National Leaders policy, all in the same week, right? That's right. Three three, uh, COVID reopening plans in four days. So, uh, I mean, we had a smorgasbord of John Key on Sunday, but we've had a smorgasbord of COVID reopening plans overall. And, I mean, ACT released its own five-point plan Tuesday. It was sort of a bit light on detail, but generally called for a move from eradication to harm minimisation. It talked about hosting some sprints where the business community can set goals for COVID transmission. I'm not 100% sure what those are, but I don't know if you've attended any business strategy sessions. Brian, I'm not sure I'd necessarily trust it to set our COVID strategy. Uh, uh, Nationals plan, that was uh, pretty constructive. It had some constructive ideas in it, including setting up some vaccination stations in places like schools, constructing a purpose-built MIQ facility, apparently in three months, which I think Derek Cheng and others said was a bit of wishful thinking, but also setting up a pandemic management agency in Manuko, increasing resourcing for contact tracing generally. Now, if you had to summarise all these plans, I guess the overarching thrust would be that New Zealand has to hit higher levels of vaccination, and as it does, the strategy changes. In Nationals' case, you have less strict lockdown measures when we're at roughly 75% vaccinated, and then the elimination strategy starts to switch to suppression when we're pushing up into that 90% rate. So speaking of which, here's a quote from a politician that I'd like to put to you. So who said this, Brian? Achieving high rates of vaccination is critical to provide protection for individuals from being infected and becoming seriously ill. It will support a safe reopening of New Zealand's borders by protecting whānau and the wider community by making it less likely that the virus will spread. So who's your guess on that one? David Seymour. That was Associate House Minister Ayesha Varel in August, and that was when Labour floated its reopening plan. So here's another one. Uh, We can't keep border restrictions on forever. Border closures were only ever a temporary measure to keep COVID out while a vaccine is developed. Winston Peters. 
My friend, that's not true. That was just in the right there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, sh- I should stop being silly. <laughs> You're trying so to be my, po- <laughs> my point is that I think it, it's a little bit lost in all of this, and maybe this is a bit of a left-wing talking point today, but I have been struck for some time by how much of the commentary on our COVID reopening plan sort of fails to take in to account the existing plan. Reading a lot of it, you'd almost think that sort of Labour's idea is to lock New Zealand up and throw away the key. Hermit uh, Kingdom. Exactly, Hermit <laughs> Kingdom, all those sorts of stuff. And so one prime example came about a month ago at the beginning of this Delta outbreak where Andrea Vance wrote that it had destroyed the government's roadmap for reopening and Patrick Smalley of Business Desk responded, hey, wait, actually nothing's really changed with the roadmap. And in fact, that roadmap from David Steg, Skeg, the epidemiologist specifically warned we had a high likelihood of a Delta outbreak coming. So I don't know whether this sort of failure to take into account the government's existing plans is due to the failure of the government to communicate them properly. It could also be lazy opinion writing, political cynicism. I mean, uh, who knows? But in a lot of the commentary that we've seen in lots of places, it almost seems to be no real attempt to differentiate how the suggestions being put forward are actually different from what we are doing already. And so we're seeing a lot of ideas presented as if they're completely new or in defiance of the strategy when sometimes they're in line with what's being announced. So what did you make on the whole, um, Hayden, of some of the things that John Key said and some of the responses that were made to what he said? Now... There was a lot of criticism of just the level of saturation coverage, right? Uh, It's quite unusual to have four news organisations publishing something at the same time, but uh, I defend them a little bit here. I mean, Key was the Prime Minister for nine years. He hasn't written one of these op-eds since he resigned. Uh, Once he got past his Apollo 13 analogy and some weird stuff about North Korea, most of his actual suggestions were pretty reasonable as well. And I think that TVNZ's Jack Tame made this point. He said, you know, some of his ideas, like giving $25 vouchers or incentives for young people to get the vaccines, are pretty sound. Uh, it, the only thing that I would say is that the column is pretty, it just adds to what seems like a chorus of the same remarkable surplus of commentary from the same types of people, especially on NZME, that's just retired politicians, blowhard broadcasters, and Paul Henry who's somehow a combination of both of those things. And I saw the NBR's Dita Deboni was pretty scathing in this point uh, on her column today, and she she accuses the company of slavishly transcribing the former PM's reckons, no matter how inane they are. I mean, uh, I mean, she says that some of these media organisations only care about the opinions of merchant bankers on the pandemic. And look, maybe that's a bit much. Maybe that's a bit unfair. But it, I I do get the sense that it sure would be nice to have a few fewer takes on elimination from the likes of, you know the Kate Hawke's views of the world, and a few more from people who actually specialise in a field related to pandemic management. Do you have any footage of John Key getting grilled by anybody on this? It's <laughs> so just been a blizzard of commentary, some general inaccuracies and a bit of hyperbole uh, sneaking through into the commentary. So here's John Key on Morning Report. Look, ultimately, we can't just sit back forever saying we're the hermit kingdom. I mean, literally, us in North Korea are the people that can't travel. I mean, you've got to get to a point, I think, where you say MIQ actually needs to work. Now, that's received, that hermit kingdom line's received a bit of pushback, uh, and Corin Dam pointed out that comparing Aotearoa to North Korea is 
pretty off, especially when 80, 80% or so of our economy is open. Dominion Post editor Anna Fifield, now she's actually literally written the book on North Korea, and she said the comparison was hyperbolic headline grab, which grossly diminishes the suffering of the people living in the world's most totalitarian state. I mean, I think uh, probably most people would go, oh, well, John Key's just been John Key there. He's been a politician. He's going for the extreme example. I'm not going to take it that seriously. But there was something else he said which maybe more people took seriously. Have you got something of that? Yeah, I do. Here's something else he said. This is about whether we could get vaccines earlier than we got them. I reckon all the evidence will show that they turned down giving Pfizer much earlier. In fact, I think they basically said they wouldn't pay the $40 million. Well, $40 million compared to a billion a week and a billion five a week it was at one point for the lockdown. See, that kind of argument there, that the government delayed the Pfizer, I mean, if you don't know, then you might think he's onto something. But what are the facts here on this one, Hayden? Well, I, I don't want to say that I have the facts, but I would say that that, that assertion is at best. It's been contested, let's just say that. So Pfizer itself has come out and explicitly denied it. It says it's baseless. Uh, that was a story by Sam Sashdeva for Newsroom, and he got Pfizer on the record about that. And you could say, hey, that's big pharma, maybe they're making stuff up. But when you say a specific figure like that, $40 million, you could have got it early, uh, you have to make sure it's going to stand up to a little bit of scrutiny and you're actually on solid foundation there. And so that's at best contested. And and I, in terms I, I, of how, how that point, that John, that argument he was making, John Key, how, how many people accepted that in the wider coverage of what he said in the last few days? I mean, I think it comes back to a wider point, right, which was that opinion sections probably just need a little bit of scrutiny and a bit... Uh, more editing because when you're a reporter you submit something to an editor that that has contested information or unsupported assertions you're liable to get pulled up on it and opinion sections don't have those same standards and in part that's because our media council justifiably excludes opinion from having to include balance but it does say that opinion pieces have to have a foundation in fact and we're pretty loose on the interpretation of that line I think and sometimes we just slap any old thing up on the website and it's good for engagement and it gets clicks and it's good for the number of traffic, the traffic number at the end of the month. But the consequences can be pretty dire in the social media age where everyone just gets served their news up in a big mush and everything looks the same. And you don't have the same visual cues that you do in a newspaper where opinion is walled off and it has your opinion section and you know, you know that that's all different. Uh, it all just looks the same, and it could be a four-line brief or it could be a front-page investigation. And I wanted to ask you if you've got some, some good news stories about news coverage. I do want to give some plaudits. The first is to Metro magazine, uh, the latest issue of Metro. Go get it. I loved it. Uh, it contains a meticulously researched investigation into fine dining restaurant pasture, surveys nine past employees who went on the record about what seems to be a toxic culture at the restaurant, stuff saying they yelled at in front of customers, routinely made to work 80-hour weeks, only paid for 40 hours at minimum wage, that kind of thing. And, I mean, the, the food blogger Eat Lip Food, he criticised us. He said it wasn't proper capital F, capital W food writing because it doesn't uphold the dining culture. And just, I just thought it was utter rubbish. There's more journalistic value in this one feature than the entirety of his Instagram account. And it it shines a light, I think, on the service industry that doesn't often get covered. We're used to seeing these glowing chef profiles and 
reviews about how the oysters were divine or whatever, but we hear less from waiters and dishwashers and line chefs who often work in these dire conditions for low pay. Metro deserves credit for peeling away the PR gloss and actually peering at a more unsightly part of the restaurant scene, especially when it relies on that scene for so much of its content. So I think that's commendable. And you have applauded as for? RNZ. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> station. Look, I, I know this is a little. I just maybe it sounds like I'm a home homer, but um, uh, RNZ Zanusha Bradley, she's been covering an unfair gap in our ACC system where you sprain an ankle playing rugby, you get free treatment, but if you um, suffer an injury during birth, you don't. You have to pay for your own care, your own treatment, and she highlighted the case of a, a woman named Susan who suffered a severe tear during birth only to have her treatment claim to ACC revoked. And the minister for ACC, Carmel Sapoloni, obviously saw this and saw Susan's plight. She thought it was wrong. And the story uh, has actually caused change. And now they're actually changing course and allowing women with birth injuries to get coverage. So that's the journalistic ideal, right? We highlighted an injustice and it led directly to real change. You often only see it in the movies, happen in real life here.